Okay, for scripture reading, look at Micah chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall follow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. For they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. Ye shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall dev devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord, the whole earth, Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O, da o daughter of troops, Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. invite you to stand with me for a time of prayer. Let's pray. 
Father, as we have read from your word this morning, we're reminded that you are a God who has a plan. You are working out your plan in the world, in our lives, in this community of faith assembled here this morning. And ultimately, you will gather all your people from all time and all places together under the protective care of the Great Shepherd. He will be our shepherd. He will be our peace. But as we reflect on some of the songs we sang this morning, we acknowledge that we're not exactly at a time and place of full rest and full peace. We encounter the warring madness, even of those who call you Father. We encounter the pride that stands up to you and is an affront to your goodness, your holiness, your justice, your righteousness. We acknowledge fears that bind us, and we ask that you would free our hearts to faith and praise. Set our feet in lofty places. Gird our lives so that they may be armored with all Christ-like graces in the fight to set men free. And Lord, grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour as we serve you the one whom we adore. We acknowledge that we are but a small assembly of your people. We're conscious that there are many others here in our town, our neighborhood also, who are gathering today to worship you. And Father, we ask that your word would shape the thinking, the affections, and the actions of your people. And that today, even as others in other congregations in the area gather to hear your word and to worship you, that you would be equipping your people in each of these congregations to be a godly people, to be an effective people in the coming week. And open our hearts here today to hear from you. We want to invite you through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to change how we think about things where we're wrong, to mature our faith so that our trust in you would be stronger and our resulting love for you would be increased. We know that as we trust you, as we love you, our capacity to love our neighbor well is also increased. So do your work today. And may Jesus be exalted here, we pray for his name's sake. Amen. You may be seated. It's certainly a, a delight uh, to be back, back home again. And uh, I probably have to do a little reminiscing here at the beginning. Because it's so deeply, and, and I marveled at this as I was preparing the sermon, 
uh, my, my reflections from the past several weeks uh, deeply colored the way I read this passage of Scripture. And I think probably in many ways it almost startled me to realize that our experiences, kind of who we are and what we bring to the worship of God, to the reading of His Word, uh, to really our interactions with each other are so deeply, so deeply shaped by what's happening in our lives at the time. And uh, that was just kind of poignantly uh, brought to my attention. Uh, one of them, I've always, and I've been out of the country quite a number of times in my reasonably short life, one of the, the moments that has always been special to me in the past is landing typically back in Washington, Dulles, coming into immigration, passport control, a fairly quick, efficient line up to the guy sitting there in his blue uniform who looks at my passport, says, welcome home. There's the loud thump, and you, you pass into your homeland where you have the rights of citizenship. And if you've ever lived overseas for any period of time, you know uh, how it's so very, very different to be in a land where you're not a citizen, where you don't have the rights of citizenship. You're a, you're a foreigner. You're an alien. Uh, there's just so many things you can't do, and there's so many things you don't know. But you know, something unique happened this time. And we, re we, we reflected on it a bit. We came into U.S. immigration. It was the most tedious, the most laborious immigration process on our entire trip. We got welcome to Europe, passport stamped quite efficiently and quickly. When we came back home, we were grilled. There was no warm welcome home. And I got the distinct impression there's a sense of concern in our government about what's out there. And even concern about its own citizens coming home, whether or not they can be trusted whether or not they're actually loyal, whether or not they can be safely permitted back into their homeland. That was just a bit of an affront to my pride. But it did cause me to think, you know, we really are at a unique place in our time in history when there is a great deal of concern as Americans about the rest of the world, and there's a great deal of concern about even the people who are inside our borders as to whether or not we are secure and at rest here in this great, powerful nation. And it's a legitimate concern. A legitimate concern. So I had some sympathies for Abraham, who got his well stolen in our passage today. I had some sympathies for him dwelling in the land of the Philistines, and not being quite sure if he was secure there, having been bumping around all over Canaan and Egypt, you know, for how many years now since God pulled him out of the land of Ur and sent him on this journey, he's ready just to settle down and be at home. Okay, the conclusion of the passage today, he does that. He's finally at rest, dwelling securely, worshiping God, enough so that he plants a tree. I didn't plant any trees in Europe. I plant trees at home. Okay, we plant trees at home. The other piece uh, that has 
I, it shows my age, okay? I don't think 20-year-olds have these conversations. But one of the highlights of the past several weeks was visiting a small town called Gugesberg in Switzerland, which was the place that Jacob Byler, 277 years ago, left to come to the United States. And honestly, 20 years ago, it didn't matter to me at all. It kind of matters now. Again, it shows my age. We spent some time there in my ancestral hometown, and it was fascinating uh, to see the Byler name across the doorway of a house, to walk through a cemetery and see the Byler name on gravestones of even the last 100 years, the last 50 years, uh, to talk to the local, a local lady who said, Oh, yeah, there are a lot of these in town, a lot of bilers here in town. To buy a CD of their men's choir and then open it up and look through the cover and there are at least three bilers singing on the men's choir of Gugesberg, der Schweiz, Switzerland. And then learning just a little bit more about this Jacob Byler who in 1737, at probably 50 years of age, you know, getting close to, I'm, I'm approaching that now. It's within striking distance. He packed it all in. Got on a boat, it wasn't a very big one, called Charming Polly, and rode the seas till he finally landed in Philadelphia. Lost his wife soon after that. Married the second time, had a second family. For what? You see, we don't, we don't know. I, I can't tell you a great heroic story that this was a great man of faith who was a stalwart Anabaptist and traveled to the United States for his faith. I can't tell you that story. I don't know that for sure. What I do know is that I had the privilege of standing in the church where he was baptized as an infant in the Swiss Reformed Church. Stood in that church, but I don't know what happened in his faith journey. Not everybody agrees that he was an Anabaptist when he came to the United States. Some people think he was, some think he wasn't. I, and, and that set me uh, asking a host of questions and reflecting about a lot of different things. Why would a man uproot and go wandering? at age 50. Okay, and I'm, I'm thinking those thoughts and I'm reading Abraham. Okay, so Abraham's ready to settle down. Abraham's ready to stop this wandering. And of course, we wandered for what, 17 days and, you know, in 15, 17, 16, 17 nights, we slept in 11 different places. I can tell you that gets old really fast. And you're ready just to be at home where things are familiar. You don't have to, you know, it's not always a different, different currency every day and a different language and you're trying to figure out what people are saying and different roads and all this different stuff. You want to be at home, at rest, in a place of rest and security and safety. So, Abraham, we have this little story tucked in here 
that really seems quite insignificant compared to the stories that surround it. Genesis 21, verses 22 through 34. I invite you to turn there if you're not there yet. The story that just precedes it is a major story in the life of Abraham. He's had the promise of God for many, many years that God was going to give him a son. And finally, in the preceding story, the son is born. Now it creates a tension in his household, and Hagar, along with his other son, have to go away. So that was a pretty tumultuous time in the life of the Abraham and Sarah family. And then we have this short story today. What follows it is also a very, very big deal. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your promised son, your only son, and I want you to take him on a three-day journey up into the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me on an altar. So we've got, we've got a story on each side of this little section that's big. One of them, great cause for celebration and joy, the birth of the long-promised son. The other one, well, you can only imagine the kind of emotions that went through Abraham when God says, I want you to take now that promised son, I want you to lay him out on an altar, and I want you to kill him, offer him to me as a sacrifice. And so I think it's in that context that suddenly this little piece uh, takes on its significance. It does matter. Abraham is seeking to dwell in peace and security. Let's read Genesis 21, verses 22 through 34. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Peace, security, and worship. Broadly speaking, a place of rest. 
we have this brief interaction between basically four characters in this story. First one is Abraham, the father of faith, kind of the primary character of this section of the Bible. But we have Abimelech arriving on the scene with his commander-in-chief, Phicol. And to remind you, when we look, uh, first encountered Abimelech back, back in chapter 20, Abimelech, uh, that name is a bit like the, the title Pharaoh or Caesar, uh, in some ways like we would talk about the president today. It's not a proper name like John, Fred, Harry, or anybody else. It's, it's a title name. So that when Abimelech appears here, he is the king, he is the father king. It's, it's his more actual interpretation. He's the father king of the land of the Philistines, of the people of Philistia. He is their head. He is their authority, just like Pharaoh was back in Egypt. And he brings with him this time another man who only appears here, as far as I know, Phicol, and he's just called the commander of the army. So he brings with him his general and probably his kind of show of power. And the context is, is not terribly clear, but it does seem as though Abimelech is a bit nervous about this Abraham living here on the edge of his territory. And, you know, it'd be very nice to know exactly what Abraham's camp looked like. But we don't know. What we do know is that many years before, he had 300 men at his service to create a quick army and left enough people behind to look after his sheep and flocks. And since then, God has prospered him phenomenally. So this isn't Abraham, his wife Sarah, and their little baby living in a tiny little tent on the edge of Philistia. Okay, this is a big deal. This is Abraham, the patriarch, the, the father of nations, a powerful presence with a massive camp, thousands and thousands of sheep and cattle and oxen and goats, all kinds of animals, and likely several thousand people. Okay, not impossible that there were several thousand people in Abraham's camp at this point. And what Abimelech sees, okay, he had an encounter with him not too long before when Sarah uh, is Abraham's sister, and Abimelech just about gets into trouble, and God has to call him to task and say, send this woman back to her husband. And Abimelech says, hey, I didn't know. They told me. She was available. She was Abraham's sister. Okay, and God had these sharp words for Abimelech. Abimelech reproves Abraham. And now Abraham, Abimelech's watching Abraham out there with this massive camp. And he says, whatever's happening, the God of Abraham is blessing him. This man is prospering. Here is a force to be reckoned with. And it appears as though he's a little nervous about it. And so he says to his general, hey, let's go talk to Abraham. Let's go have a conversation. Okay, it's interesting what his primary concern is in this initial conversation. Abraham, will you swear to me that you will be trustworthy and honest in your dealings with us as a people? 
Okay, and the only way I know to read that is in light of what happened in chapter 20, where he was deceptive and somewhat underhanded and not exactly upfront and clear in his dealings with Abimelech when he and Sarah go into the land of the Philistines. And so Abimelech says, Abraham, uh, I, I see this massive camp out here, and I see that God is blessing and prospering you, and you're a powerful force to be reckoned with. Promise me that I can trust you. Promise me that you'll be upfront. Promise me that you'll be clear and not deceptive. Because if you're deceptive, we've got a problem on our hands. And it's interesting, Abraham's response is, it seems, to, seems to be almost immediate. He took that oath. He said, yes, I swear, I will do that. Now, I, you can only imagine what was going through their minds as this is happening, but I can't help but believe Abraham's thinking, yeah, I know. I was stupid when I took my wife in there and you know all that stuff that happened. So we've got that one clear and out of the way. The second incident Abraham says, okay, now I've got Abimelech here. I've got this problem with Abimelech. I've got this problem with his people. I dug a well, and some of Abimelech's people took the well away from me. And I can't dwell in peace and security if people keep taking my property. And so Abimelech is very forthright. Uh, Abraham is very forthright with Abimelech and says, listen, I've got this problem. You're the king, you're the father king here, and your people are not behaving themselves. They're causing me trouble. Okay, and Abimelech very quickly says, hey, I didn't know that. You never told me. I wasn't aware of it until right now. Well, that's fair enough. Now you know. And Abraham immediately keeps the momentum here and says, and we're going to make a public show of this thing, and we're going to nail this one down, and we're going to hold your feet to the fire. I'm going to give you these cattle. I'm going to give you these sheep, and we're going to make a covenant, and you're going to let me keep my well. Okay, so you see the negotiation that's taking place here. Uh, Abraham clearly now is, is kind of on a roll. And he says, I've got the king's attention. Uh, I'm going to make my case, and we're going to nail it down. We're going to get it in blood. We're going to get the signature while he's here so that I know, he knows, and if anybody comes and tries to take away my new well, Abimelech knows he can sort this out. Oh, and I'm sure he took note of the fact that Phicol, the commander of the army, is standing right beside him. Okay, it seems that this commander of the army was simply brought along as a witness. He doesn't really play into it other than as an observer, as a witness, kind of as the captain of the police force of the Philistines. Now, what I want you to consider is what is the context of what's taking place here and how might this shape the way we think about how we live in our world? Specifically, how we live in relationship to the state, to government. Does it have anything to say to us? Does it have a lesson here to teach us? I have noted throughout the years that there have been people throughout history, there have been people in our time, and I think even in our congregation here in the last couple of years, whom God has blessed in significant ways. 
And as the proverb writer says, someone has excelled in their work, in their field. And because of excelling in that way, they have stood before kings. Okay, now the king may not have been the president of the United States, but may have been the governor of Virginia. We've had people meet the governor because they were excellent in their field. We've had people have lunch and dinner with dignitaries of our town, our county. And Proverbs makes it clear that when, when people excel in their field, eventually that gets acknowledged and they're able to serve even in high places before governors, before senators, before presidents. Uh, I, one of my kind of most startling illustrations of this, I uh, interacted some with a small Christian community in Texas and was having lunch. Well, one of their families was actually staying at our house uh, here in Virginia one time, and they were telling us a story about their community. They have a very good uh, group of musicians in their Christian community. They had an outstanding string quartet. And that string quartet was invited to play at a dinner. Uh, at that time, President George W. Bush hosted at his ranch in Texas. They invited this string quartet from their church to come in and provide the music for President Bush and some foreign guests that he was hosting at his ranch. What was also interesting is that a couple of people from that church had such a reputation with the president that they would go into his ranch home every week and clean it. Okay? That, that type of relationship. Uh, a couple of the men were allowed to hunt. They had free passes to hunt on the president's ranch. They trusted him. Uh, the president wanted to add a building onto his ranch, and he hired a contractor from this particular community of faith. He trusted them. And believe me, they were excellent, excellent craftsmen. Absolutely excellent craftsmen. They stood before kings. And so it's, it's safe to assume that a, a Christian person with God-given skills that exercises them with integrity, in virtue, and develops them to the highest levels possible, will stand before kings. Will be noticed by people in authority. What do you do when that happens? Okay, some people get all ugly-eyed. I'm not sure what the right word is there. But, ah, wow, ooh. I'll very quickly discover that these people are just people as well. They're humans. But they have these kinds of interactions because God has blessed them. And so here Abraham is standing before the king. What you don't want to do is bring the reputation Abraham had to that platform, being kind of tricky and deceptive. Okay? And so here the authority, the ruler, had to confront that one right up front. Listen, you're a force to be reckoned with. Don't be. Can I have your word that you will not be deceptive, that you'll operate with integrity and clarity? Because you see, honesty, integrity, clarity, 
is essential, not just to Christian communities. It's also essential to the well-being of a society. And so we care about it not just in the church. We also care about it in our communities. We care care about it and ought to care about it as a nation. And so I want you to note here that there are several things that Abraham and Abimelech, the man of faith, the father of faith, and the pagan king both care about. And they care about deeply. They care about the peace of their area where they live. They care about the security, the justice of their town, of their community, of their state. And what I want to suggest to us here today is to consider that when a government is a good government, they care about these two things. They care about the peace of the town. They care about the peace of the nation. They care about the security of the nation. We, too, should care about that. And we should be, just like Abraham, quick to say, yes, I care about that. I will invest in that as well. That matters to us. I think in our tradition as conservative Anabaptists, we have tended to have a bit of an us versus them perspective. Somebody's in government, he's clearly an, an other, clearly not us. And sometimes we've had a suspicion and a bit of an antagonism between us and government. We don't see that here. We see, we see an open relationship about the things that are mutually significant, that matter mutually. And I think as we're given the opportunity, as people in this community, as the people of God in this community, we're given the opportunity to interact with officials, with government officials, with people in positions of power and authority. We want to demonstrate this same kind of support and care and concern about the peaceableness, the security, and the well-being of our community. Now, I also was startled just a bit thinking back on the previous three messages I preached, particularly the one about seeking the common good, the welfare of the city, because it's the same message. This is really the same message. Now, the government may go about it in very different ways, but when the government is doing God's work in keeping with God's way, we should be the kind of people who can affirm and bless those desired outcomes. Okay, and that's true for Rockingham County. Now, some from here, from this congregation, are leaving us very, very near future. We've got some people in other parts of the world from this congregation as well. That's also true in those places. And I recall as a very young man being in a foreign country, living you know, overseas, I had an incredible fear of the government because I was sure that they wanted me out of there. And so I struggled meeting a local policeman was afraid that he'd discover I'm here on a tourist visa and maybe, you know, he wouldn't like that. And yeah, I'm a foreigner and all this stuff. I think the, the, the better approach is to say, you know, there are some things that matter to the common good of God's people, to the common good of a nation, to the common good of a town. And we should be known to care about those things. They need to matter to us. And we need to use our voice, our presence, our affirmation to say, we too care about this. And when we're asked for our cooperation it, with clarity, with honesty, with integrity, to be that kind of people who nurture the peace and security of our towns, our villages, our communities, our nations, 
We need to be just like Abraham, prompt. Yes. Yes, I'm here for that end as well. And I want you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy when he said to Timothy, I want you to pray to intercede for all people and especially for those who are in positions of authority. What was the desired outcome that he said, I want you to intercede for them so that you can lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness? That's a desirable end. Whether you're here or whether God calls you overseas or God calls you into a new country where you really feel your alien status, God wants you to still work that way in those places to pray, to intercede for those who are in authority so that we as the people of God can have this peace and security in our nation, in our communities. Okay, now the difficulty here is we've got a lot of stress on that front in our country right now, in the world in which we live. But that doesn't mean that we abandon the dream of peace and security, justice in our towns. It doesn't mean we abandon it and simply begin our escape to the mountains, hiding in the caves, burrowing under the ground, because it could really get bad. No, it means we are an active, salt, light presence in the world. And when we're given the opportunities to speak, we affirm the places where justice is being nurtured, where the peace and security of the people is being assured by those who are in authority. And we cooperate and we bless just as Abraham did here. Now, that's not all we do. Okay? We will have issues. People will, might take our wells. People might do other things that are not just, that threaten our security. Okay, do we then say, well, I've got to just somehow always just absorb that? Or is there a government responsibility? I think there's a government responsibility to assure the peace and security of its people. And so Abraham says, oh, by the way, I've got your ear. I've got this problem over here. I invested hard to establish my presence here by digging this well, and some of your people came and took my well. Okay? That should be a problem for a government. Abimelech says, ah, not good. It's a problem. And so Abraham addresses his problems to the, the state, if you will, invites them to do their job, and Abimelech does, and then they seal the deal. Okay, and what you have is you have both sides here expressing their concerns, both sides affirming what it looks like to dwell in peace and security in the land of Philistia between powerful Abraham and the king and the peoples, and Abraham brings up his herds, his cattle and his sheep as a sign of this agreement. They make the deal. In addition, he sets apart seven ewes. And apparently, they, they kill them together and lay them out in the traditional kind of blood covenant that's made here. Now, I, maybe, maybe that messes a bit with the way you think about your relationship to the state, uh, to county officials, to city officials, to state officials. 
And I would invite your kind of pushback and feedback on that. But clearly that's how Abraham is interacting. I think there are places in the New Testament that clearly affirm that type of open, honest interaction. And when the people of God are being the people of God, I think they ultimately serve as a voice of conscience to a nation. And when the people of God refuse to be that voice of conscience to a nation, I think the salt loses its savor. It doesn't mean we become coercive. It does mean that as we have opportunity, as we have relationships, as we have interaction, we be the people of God. We communicate the message of God. We do so with clarity. When we are reproved by the state for th things that are not Christian virtue, we acknowledge, repent, and seek by the grace of God to be honorable. Okay, that relationship is the way in which God can prosper a nation, and also the way in which the people of God can be the people of God. Their presence can be felt as both salt and light, and truly bring godliness to a nation, a place where the community of faith can flourish. And again, I want you to listen to these words. The Apostle Paul, then, to Timothy. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. What's the end? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. This is good. It's not something to be ashamed of if God gives us a place in which we can lead a quiet and peaceful life. That doesn't mean hiding and doing nothing. It means being salt and light. But to be able to do that in a peaceful and secure place is truly a gift from God. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's good for us to long for that, to yearn for that, wherever God places us. And he says, to pray ardently for that. The deal is done, essentially. Abimelech, if I call, pack up and go home. Abraham plants a tree. Now, I don't know if any of you are tree planters or not. My father-in-law was a big tree planter. Okay, as soon as he moved somewhere, he bought a piece of property, he's planting trees. Okay, and you don't go planting trees. Most people, like Johnny Appleseed, just randomly throughout the countryside. You plant trees where you plan to live. Because it's not like broccoli. The harvest comes in a couple of months, you cut it down and you're done. No, the harvest is way down the road. Abraham here plants a tree. It's a sign that he believes God is going to permit him a, a place of rest in peace and security for an extended period of time. Sure, he's still an alien. He's still far from home. He's not inhabiting the promised land as such. But he's temporarily at home here, and he's willing to rest, willing to settle down. 
and he sees it as the sign of God's blessing. The son that's been promised has been born. We have a good relationship with the king. We're going to plant a tree. We're digging a well. We're settling in. But notice something else Abraham does. He plants a tree. He names the place Beersheba, the place of oaths, where he made this vow with Abimelech. And he calls there on the name of the Lord. But this is the first time this name for God appears. And in the Hebrew, it's Jehovah El Olam. In the ESV, simply, the Lord, the everlasting God, the everlasting one. So here is Abraham in this moment of time making a deal with the king. And he's making the deal not just for himself, because Abimelech actually asked about his posterity. He said, I want you to assure me that your sons, your descendants, are going to treat me honorably, are going to live honorably with me. Abraham says, I will. Well, he's not going to be around to police that forever. He's resting now in the moment, and he says, the God who called me out of Ur, who brought me to this place, he is the everlasting God. I'm here in this moment. I'll do what I can do, but I worship and trust the God who's from eternity past to eternity future. He is the context. He is the entire environment around me and it's in that context that I rest and I worship and there's an Old Testament theme that we can point out and Brother Benjamin read uh, this, this past, one of the passages that refers to the vine and the fig tree nine times in the Old Testament that little line is used the vine and the fig tree and it always has to do with people uh, resting under their vine and their fig tree and it means they've come home and they're at a place of security and rest and peace. Sometimes you find that image, the vine is now drying up and shriveling and the fig tree is not bearing fruit. That means people are at home in places where life is hard. The blessing of God is not flowing freely. They're facing starvation and hardship. Abraham here is at a time of blessing. And he doesn't have the vine and the fig tree, but he's got his tree. Plant your tree. Worship the everlasting God. Okay, And I, I want you to hear me here. That doesn't mean I'm telling you to stay in Rockingham County all your life. You plant your tree where God places you. God's going to call some of you out of Rockingham County to other parts of the world. When you get there, be there in this kind of way. Wherever God places you, learn to be there this kind of way, as salt, as light, as seeking the peace and prosperity and blessing of God in that place. And then worship God, the everlasting God, there. And may he bring peace and security. May you dwell in peace and security. I'd like to pause for just a few moments. And we're going to spend just a few moments in silent prayer. I would like for us to pay attention to the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy.
to privately, and then in conclusion here collectively to pray for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He's told us to pray that way. We need to pray that way. And for those of you whom God is calling to other places, pray that for those people as well, even before you get there. So I invite you just to pause, bow your heads, and listen to these words. Pray, intercede, and give thanks for all people, particularly for kings and those in high positions. Let's just pause for a few moments of prayer. Our Father, you have been gracious to us in so many ways. And compared to so much of the world, we do dwell in peace and security in this nation and in this community. We acknowledge, though, that there's a great deal of fear in our nation today because of the unrest of the world, because of the evil that's present in the world, and not just outside of our nation, but also inside this nation. And Father, you have, you have placed people in these positions of authority, our president, our senators, our congressmen. Lord, you've established state authorities, our governors, local authorities, and we ask that you would give them wisdom. You would give them a true sense of justice and order so that our nation, our communities can be ordered in a way that allows your people to dwell in peace, to dwell in security, to lead a peaceable and quiet life, to grow in godliness, to be a dignified people in every way. And in a world in which we have the opportunity to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, to announce his glorious gospel, freely so that many can come to the knowledge of truth and be a part of your kingdom ultimately. Father, the responsibilities of those in authority are great. The burdens weigh heavily. Strengthen them, sustain them, and guide them. And may we be, first of all, citizens of the heavenly kingdom who then are good citizens of these places on earth in which you've placed us. Help us to be agreeable, to be a blessing. And as you prosper us, help us to bless those around us. Grant us wisdom and grant us courage to that end. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.